Herb Alpert and the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his inaugural appearance, at least as a writer for Fangraphs, is Jeff Sullivan. You may already be familiar with Jeff Sullivan from his work at Lookout Landing, the SB Nation site for the Seattle Mariners. You might be familiar with his work previously at the homepage, the baseball homepage, for SB Nation, Baseball Nation. And if you are a particularly attentive reader and or listener, you'll be aware that Jeff Sullivan has recently joined the electronic pages of Fangraphs. In fact, join him this Monday. It came to my attention at around the time that uh, Dave Cameron informed me that Sullivan would be writing for us that Jeff has another interest, a pretty significant one, uh, an interest in volcanoes. One of the things uh, about the internet baseball community or the sabermetric baseball community that that I particularly appreciate is the enthusiasm that many of its members have for subjects outside of baseball. And while uh, I must admit that I personally, I, Carson Sestouli, don't care for volcanoes per se, I am particularly interested in the things that make other smart, intelligent people, or Jeff Sullivan, either one in this case, about the things that capture that sort of person's imagination. And it's to that end that I arranged this particular episode of the podcast with Jeff Sullivan Tuesday night to ask him about volcanoes, not just volcanoes, but what about volcanoes in particular appeals to him. So in fact, please believe me when I tell you that this is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature new Fangraphs contributor Jeff Sullivan, and it begins right now. Up. I don't know if this is going to be a factor at all. I don't know what topics we're going to discuss. But for the past two weeks before this one, uh, I was in between jobs, and I was basically focusing on the Mariners, taking a little bit of a break from from greater baseball. So I'm kind of reacquainting myself with oh the no. Rest um, of when I asked, when I told you before, I was interested in volcanoes. I was not. I was not joking. That's really. That's actually all I wanted to talk about. <laughs> well, that hell yeah. Uh, that's a good thing you already started recording. You've got all kinds of volcano facts to talk about. Well, so the thing is, I want to make it clear, and my guess is that I've said this in the introduction as well, is that um, it is not my intention at all uh, to have this seem or be a uh, a wacky podcast uh, episode of the podcast or, a, you know, a silly one. Um, you have, it's my understanding, and you seem to have noted it, I think you made mention of it uh, during your chat today a little bit, you have a genuine affection for or a genuine interest in volcanoes. That's true? Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. If I have a hobby, I mean, baseball writing was my hobby, right? That's why I started doing it. It was a blog that distracted me from, from what I would do, what I had to do during the day. And then when baseball became the thing that I had to do during the day, I needed to find a hobby. So now my hobby is reading about and and going to volcanoes. Right. And so I guess what I mean to say is that for me, I don't really care whether it's volcanoes or not. But the thing that's exciting for me, um, and this happens a lot, uh, I've noticed, I think, within the sort of baseball nerd community, is that you do find people who have, um, you know, whether it is their hobby or whether, you know, it may be if, if writing for them is just a part-time endeavor – uh, in their real, in their other parts of their lives, they do interesting, weird things. Um, I think that thinking about baseball in a sort of careful way uh, lends itself. That that sort of brain is uh, typically will lend itself to other sort of nerdly activities. And so, what I hope 
today is I, I want to understand volcanoes, but I also want to understand volcanoes in – and I want to understand your enthusiasm for volcanoes. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And I, mean, I know that when I was getting to know Rob, Rob Nyer, like I remember uh, early on when I got to know him, it's like, oh, you're really into birds. What a dork. And then I would go home and I would read a book about volcanoes. Like, well, actually, hold on a second. Yeah, that's We're the pot calling the kettle dork. Yeah, birds are beautiful also, so I totally get it more now. Well, no, but I understand. I mean, because uh, Cameron told me the other day that you like volcanoes a lot. And I, and I thought that, that he, like, because Cameron is, like, wacky sometimes. And I, um, so I said, oh, like, why are you saying that about Jeff Sullivan, that he likes volcanoes so much? <laughs> he's like, no, like. Jeff loves volcanoes, and the way he described it, it actually just seemed like the sort of thing, like precisely the sort of thing that like a young boy with Asperger's would like. Um, <laughs> no, just to know everything about because like I like I knew this one kid with Asperger's who and it was actually in Portland. He knew all of the drain, the drains. He knew all about the drainage system in Portland. So like if you were at a particular intersection, he could tell you about the sewer in that particular area. Interesting. Um, yeah, which is interesting. I mean, it's interesting. It's like interesting, not in and of itself necessarily. But again, the curious yeah. thing is like, w- like, why do you know that? Why do you like knowing about that? <laughs> and you are, it sounded to me like that. Like, is there anything different uh, from the way that you interact with volcanoes and the way that that five-year-old boy interacts with the sewers of Portland? Well, I, I don't know how, how much research he does. I don't know how easily he gains this information. It's funny. I had... I was over at a friend's house some years ago, and his his aunt is a psychiatrist, and she walked in, and within 10 minutes, she was like, you, pointing to me, you have Asperger's. Like, I don't know if you're being tongue-in-cheek or not. I don't think I have Asperger's. I, uh, I like to think that I don't have mental illness. Well, I think but, that we're all, uh, uh, there's probably a spectrum. We, we'll suggest yeah, that you're no, on the spectrum, Jeff. Spectrum. Yeah. yeah, you're on the spectrum. Uh, I believe Dr. Asperger himself uh, referred to his patients as little professors. And I think that you could pass as uh, could you could you profess with regard to volcanoes like 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 a low level volcano class? Say again. Could you be a volcano professor? Uh, not yet, but I have. I mean, honestly, if I weren't writing about baseball right now, I would probably be taking some classes so I could uh, become a volcanologist. Okay, so let's start from this the beginning. Like, um, what is sort of like. Uh, at a basic level, what do you suppose is a thing to which you are attracted um, um, so far as volcanoes are concerned? I don't know. It's kind of like this childlike sense of wonder that I don't feel about anything else. But I kind of I see one, and I think that is majestic, and it's incredible. Like, you look at a mountain. You look at the Rocky Mountains, and, of course, they're incredible. They're bigger than most volcanoes, and they're a lot longer. And it's the, the forces at play are just unimaginable in their their magnitude but you look at a volcano and it's just it's a similar sort of process where it's just something emerges from nothing but it's just so explosive and fast and it's humbling I guess and uh, being around one you get to conceive of how just the earth made this form you know from what's going on underneath in a relatively fast way and you think of natural processes as being generally slow moving whether that be extinctions or global warming or what have you. But, I mean, look at Harikuten, the Mexican volcano that emerged in the farmer's yard, right? And that was just in the middle of last century. And within a few months, it was huge. 
within a week it was huge. It was it was just nothing that was there, and then there was something there. Okay, wait, wait. So crazy. so let's pretend, just for sake of argument, that I um, was not familiar with the story that you just invoked. Can you could you just tell it a little bit slower? What's the name of the mountain? It's a, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but Panikutin. Panikutin. Okay. I don't know. But I think I I first read heard about this when I was like a, a young boy. I don't remember if this was elementary school or middle school, but I think it's one of those stories that really appeals to children where you have farmer, farmer family in Mexico, and he has a big plot of land. I think it was corn. And uh, and there was a big noise that he heard, and then he, he looked over in an area of his farm, and there was an explosion, and stuff started coming out of the ground, and basically a, a volcano formed, witnessed by humans, right there on his farm ground. And within a short amount of time, it was thousands of feet tall. Uh, and so what forces would have made that happen? Uh, the, if you want to talk scientifically, we're talking about subduction, and that's one one plate going underneath another plate, and then some of the plate melts, and it turns into magma, and the magma forces itself to the surface. Uh, if you're looking for something less scientific, I don't know. Uh, there was stuff underneath that had to come up. Okay, so um, now... Uh, was that farmer compensated? <laughs> uh, no, I don't believe so. <laughs> I think he was compensated by having to find a new farm because his old farm had a volcano in it. Yeah, that's rough. It kind of, yeah, it kind of destroyed some villages. Um, now you mentioned that that part of the attraction uh, might be to the the sort of, um, I guess, the power. It's 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 sort of this overwhelming power uh, that a volcano could possess, right? And that's true because. Um, at least from what I know of them. And of course, you've, you live now, or you, you know, I mean, you cheer for a team uh, that's sort of in the uh, vicinity of um, some famous volcanoes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think Rainier, Mount Rainier, which is not very far, is that technically a volcano? Is it a dormant volcano? Uh, Mount Rainier is definitely, it's considered active, and it's, uh, it's kind of a threat. There are communities around it that are on high alert that they could. Stuff could happen. It's, it's constantly being monitored. It is expected to erupt again within a short, geologically short period of time. Uh, and then, of course, Mount St. Helens is probably, I don't know, is, it, is that the most famous U.S.-based uh, volcanic episode? I don't know. I guess it kind of depends. If you're asking, if you ask the average American about a volcano, he'll probably tell you Mount St. Helens or Yellowstone, right? And, uh, and Mount St. Helens is the one because it went off, and Yellowstone is the one because the media says it's going to go off and kill everybody. Yeah, I want to talk about that momentarily. Um, but do you think <laughs> the fact that you live near those volcanoes has anything to do with your fascination with them? Oh, yeah. No, totally. I mean, I think there is. this is always under the surface, but when I moved to Portland a couple of years ago and I walked down the street and I saw Mount Hood just, I don't know, 50, 60 miles away, it just kind of something ignited. And, and from there, I just haven't been able to get enough. Right. And actually, I believe Portland, Oregon, if I'm not mistaken, is the um, the only city that has a, a volcano uh, within its city limits? Yeah, we have a few of them. I mean, they're, they're extinct, and they're millions and millions of years old, but we have a few little, basically little humps that are, that are within the city that are parks that you would remember, but I won't name because it doesn't matter. Oh, okay, right. Uh, now, so here's a question I want to ask you: Is um, you mentioned that, that part of it, uh, your attraction to the volcano, is is the natural power of it, right? 
Um, the fact that, uh, for example, with St. Helens, that it could have uh, such a significant impact on the surrounding area um, and even, you know, beyond that. Um, I'm curious, do you have a similar fascination or or sort of something, uh, you know, like a uh, a similar root of a fascination with, like, for example, a tornado uh, or a tidal wave uh, or earthquake or something like this? I, those are very profoundly scientifically interesting. I don't have much of an interest because I guess I can't, for example, go somewhere and observe an earthquake or I can't go look at a, a tidal wave just sitting there. Uh, so there's, there's something, like I'm, I'm always also enchanted with mountains and there's just something so majestic about seeing one just, just sitting there like this looming threat or previous threat. And with, with like a tornado, if I were to see one, I would be overwhelmed by by the sensation, but I can't just go go see one hanging out. You know, I could only see one that's active. Uh, what are the chances that uh, your fascination with um, volcanoes, which is sort of, as you just noted, sort of threat personified, uh, what are the chances that has something to do with your relationship with your mother? Uh, I I don't know. I could ask my therapist about that. I could ask him about that next week. But um, I think the odds are that. I have no idea how to answer this question, and I'm just saying words right now so that it sounds like I'm giving you an answer, even though I'm really not, and I'm just kind of droning on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. No, you caught me off guard with that one. Yeah, I know, but I think I think it probably says a lot. That would be my guess. Um, let's totally. see. Uh, oh, yeah, so um, in terms of uh, an amateur, uh, what do you call it? Oh, sorry, vulca- volcanologist, is that right? Volcanologist, yeah. Volcanologist. So um, for someone uh, who maybe has... Uh, that sort of spark of interest in volcanoes, uh, but is is uh, wondering where to look for more information or or the sort of to follow the thread of that of that fascination. Um, well, what would sort of be I, the I guess it would be this is the uh, theory because what is what is fangraphs right? But a baseball blog that serves to to educate those who wish to know more about what's going on in baseball. And just as there are blogs about baseball and all sports, there are active volcano blog, and I happen to follow one one guy on Twitter who's also a, a geology professor, and he has a blog about volcanoes. His name is Eric Clemetti, and he's he's at Denison University. His Twitter handle is Eruptions Blog, and he's just uh, he's a big baseball fan, and we just kind of connected, and he kind of keeps me up to date on, on what's going on around the world. Like, uh, there was an eruption near Mount Doom, which, of course, now is Mount Doom, but Mount Doom from Lord of the Rings in New Zealand, the actual volcano, there was an eruption a few weeks ago. Oh, what happened? I mean, besides the fact that there was an eruption. <laughs> no, it, it was just a small eruption. It, it blew up. It kind of caught people by surprise, and there was people woke up, and there was ash everywhere. It's kind of, it, I don't think there was any death or property damage. I think it's kind of remote uh, in New Zealand, but I've never been. Um, so, what are the sort of what are the kind of exciting things going on? What, uh, of late with regard to volcanoes. You mentioned this one eruption. I'm curious, like, either in terms of volcanic activity or in terms of uh, maybe kind of exciting discoveries about volcanoes. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I never – I mean, Tuesday morning I chat on Fangraphs, and that's part of my job, and then later Tuesday I talk about volcanoes, and this is part of – I love this job. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you something that I, I got from Nova – uh, you know the show Nova, of course, and they did an episode almost a year ago about volcanoes. And there's a Japanese scientist who's using 
these these particles called muons. There's a very long explanation, but basically they are muons flying through space all the time. There's muons, thousands of muons going through you at this very moment. They're just passing right through you. You don't even, they just, that's it. They're, you're basically invisible to muons. And this guy is using muon detectors to be able to see the inside of volcanoes. And he's, he's kind of experimental. He's been doing it in Japan. But by setting up detectors, uh, if you consider that what is a volcano, but you're going to have solid rock and you're going to have less dense rock, right? So there's going to be areas of more and less dense matter. And muons will be able to pass through the less dense matter a lot more easily than they can pass through, like, the solid, solidified hard rock. And so by setting up detectors to identify how many muons are going through in each little area, then he can sort of map the inside of the volcano, which can tell you about the size of the volcanic throat, can tell you about its explosive potential. It's just a way to see the inside of something. It's almost like a volcanic MRI, I guess. And how do you spell muon? Is it M-U-O-N or? Yes. Greek, you know. Right. Oh, yeah, look at that. Okay, yeah, M-U, right, right, right. And so uh, so that you can use this to, in theory, to understand uh, a little bit more about a volcano. Yeah, so I, there's, there's the idea that the the size of the throat, you know, like the, the central core of the volcano can tell you more about uh, its eruptive potential and how, how big it could be, how dangerous it could be, maybe how soon it could happen. So being able to see the inside of a volcano for the first time is potentially really helpful, but it's, as far as I know, it's, it's new research. So who knows if it's actually going to be useful. And um, now you, you invoked it earlier, and I'd like to go back to it, because um, I know actually when I was teaching – uh, at Portland Community College there, uh, one of the uh, – I was teaching writing and um, expository writing, uh, and one of the sort of paper sections we did was uh, concerned research. And one of my students actually wanted to research and did some research on uh, the sort of volcanic properties, the volcanic potential of uh, Yellowstone, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is this uh, sort of one of those things – in um, this probably happens in baseball reportage too, where uh, something that is maybe only of passing interest to the sort of uh, nerdier set within, in this case, say the the volcan, you know, the uh, the volcanic community, uh, has a wider appeal perhaps to the public. Um, is this is this like a an active threat, or is it just something that because if it actually did happen? The consequences would be so grave, but perhaps maybe it's not—it's uh, not actually um, that interesting within within the community. I'm trying to think of a good baseball parallel, and I'm having trouble. But it's something that so if you think about the Yellowstone supervolcano, first of all, you probably know it as a supervolcano. That's the term people like to use, and it is—it is a supervolcano. It's not the only supervolcano in the world. I think there's something like eight. There's one in California. There's there's one in New Zealand, Lake Taupo. And there's, there's a handful of supervolcanoes, any of which could could deal <laughs> severe, incredible damage uh, to, the, to the planet short-term and long-term. But uh, the media loves to sensationalize the whole Yellowstone thing because, of course, the media is all about fear and doom and gloom and, and what tragedy is going to to befall the nation next, or the world next. So, I mean, it's a really easy way to get people kind of freaked out and paying attention. And so people, people know Yellowstone is a thing that could end their lives, but... Uh, I think those within the actual business uh, probably are kind of 
a little pissed off about the, the sensationalism and that Yellowstone doesn't merit so much media attention. It is, I mean, an active, it's not an active threat, but it is active and it is a threat, but there's, there's no indication that anything's going to happen anytime soon. It is under constant, incredible, thorough surveillance. So, I mean, if something were to happen, we would, we would hear about it, uh, well at, beyond any event. But it's one of those things that could do an unbelievable amount of damage to the world, but that, I mean, there's, there's nothing imminent. So it's kind of like saying, well, sure, an asteroid could, could hit the Earth. Yeah, it could, but as, as far as I know, there's no imminent threat of, of us all dying from a cosmic collision. No, part of my naivety, but but uh, Yellowstone, uh, I mean, there are mountains surrounding it, but the way I understand it is that somehow the park itself, like that land mass, is is the sort of volcanic part. Uh, is this another situation like like with that with that farmer had in Mexico, or is it a, is it a different kind of volcanic volcano than the sort of uh, typical t- typical sort? It is so. There are volcanoes. You're familiar with the Ring of Fire that goes around. Like the Pacific. Oh yeah, that sounds familiar, right? Yeah. So the Ring of Fire is basically this long curved chain of volcanoes that are around the the plate borders, the tectonic plate borders, and that's where there is subduction. The plate is going underneath the continental plate, land or plate mass melts, and then it forms magma. And magma needs to needs to go to the surface because the gas is in it. So there are volcanoes that exist at subduction zones, which trace plate boundaries, and then there are these it's hotspot volcanoes, and Hawaii is a good example, or Iceland is a good example of a hotspot, where it's just, for whatever reason, there's this magma plume, in the, sort of in the middle of the plate, that emerges not at a boundary. And Yellowstone is also sort of a hotspot, where it's not a plate boundary, there's just a ton, there's like an incredibly massive magma chamber underneath the ground. Uh, there is no peak, you know, there's no prominent conical peak like you associate with a classic volcano uh, because it just it hasn't done it. It's more of a, I believe it's a caldera, so the land is actually kind of sunk into the magma chamber a little bit after, I think, the most recent giant eruption some hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, so you have this situation where it, it, the land is elevated, but within the center, it, it's just the whole thing is basically a volcano. It's big, flat sort of sunken volcano, and if it were to erupt, then it would all come out of that that big hole. Oh, man. Yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. does sound uh, uh, frightening, but uh, but as you suggested, maybe it's not uh, doesn't deserve the most of our attention. I, here, I have another question. Is that I think uh, one thing that Cameron mentioned, and maybe, the, uh, maybe this is something you actually did recently, you mentioned you were sort of away from town, um, is that you visit uh, you visit volcanoes. Or hike, hike up them. Yeah, hike near them. Yeah, no, I, I love to hike. I mean, if I live in Portland, Oregon, right? So almost all of the mountains around here are volcanic in origin, anyway. So if I want to do a hike, I'm probably hiking on on something of volcanic nature. But yeah, no, just a few weekends ago, Matthew Carruth, Sandgrass Rider, right? And also look at Landing Cove. Right, yeah, sure, mine. of course. Yeah, we uh, we just go went and camped in Central Oregon, and we climbed the South Sister, which is one of the three sisters, which is a Cascade volcano just what's the bend. It is. It's still now. You understand that as a, as a layperson, uh, so far as volcanoes are concerned, when I think of a volcano, I think very like I think of like a child's drawing of a volcano. Like it's like a mountain, and then there's a hole at the top, and then there's lava and magma. 
Right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, is that the sort of thing you're climbing? You can look over the edge and you see magma? It is. It's not like that. That There are volcanoes like that, and that's called a lava lake, very imaginatively. It's basically a lake of lava. But there are only, like, three or four or five active lava lakes in the world. There's one in Antarctica. There's a couple in Africa. Uh, and those, you can just kind of climb up, look over, and you see roiling, loud, bright orange lava. Uh, other volcanoes aren't like that. Uh, the South Sister is, you know, it's a mountain and it's a cone, and you get to the top and there's a crater, but there's no active lava in the crater, and the crater, of course, is filled in with snow, so it can't, it's actually just kind of flat, because it's up there at 10,358 feet, so it's still frozen. Wait, uh, did you climb up? How high did you climb up? Well, so, I mean, we got to the summit, but the trailhead is at something like, I don't know, 5,000 feet. So, I mean, we gained like a mile. and It was, it was the most intense hike that we've done, but it wasn't it wasn't technical. It was just hard. Hot. It was really hot. Wait, is oh, hot? Man. Is it hot or... But you said it's frozen at the top. Can you resolve that for us? Uh, you, you have so much snow, ice, that's, that's at the very, very top that it takes a very, very long time, a long exposure to the heat to actually thoroughly melt. So, I mean, the South Sister is year-round going to have some degree of, of snow and ice on it. But as we were climbing, it was probably, I don't know, 90 degrees at the bottom and still very quite warm at the top, uh, warm enough for the snow to be receding. It was just not completely receded at all by the time that we got up there. Wow. All right. And so even at 10,000 feet, it was it was hot? Yeah, no, it was it was really quite warm. That was an un- unusual weekend in Oregon. It was a really unpleasantly hot. We- I really don't like heat at all. Right. Well, and of course, you know, this is eastern Oregon. This is east of. The- well, you say I guess it's part of the Cascades. Yeah. No, it's, it's basically the exact center, I think, of Oregon. Is about where this is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, from driving through. I mean, eastern Oregon is a. Um, and by I guess I by eastern Oregon I mean really. Anything east of Portland by 20 miles, start you know starting at around 20 miles. But like if you drive out on the Columbia River Gorge, it's a t- it's and anyone who has never seen this, it's an entirely different landscape than you would find um, on the western side of the Cascades. It's it's dry uh, and it's sort of I guess you could call it a high plains desert or something like that. Yeah, uh, what you have is you have the Cascade Range that kind of if you will stops the weather so the clouds. The rain roll in from the ocean, and then they just kind of bump up against the mountains, and then they have to let the water go. And so beyond the mountains, you just have very, very little rain. Yeah, uh, you might even call it... Yeah, rain shadow, right. You might call that a rain shadow. I mean, you would... you do People do call it a rain shadow all the time. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's actually the the specific term for the process. Right. It's not quite as technical as lava lake, but it's close. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> lava lakes are awesome. No, have there, you ever seen? A, uh, wait, have you seen a lava lake then? I've only like watched shows about lava lakes. I've never been to the Congo or Ethiopia or or Antarctica. But I was reading an article a few weeks or months ago about this this group of people in somewhere in Africa. They just climbed a uh, they climbed the to the top of one of these volcanoes with a lava lake, and they had this giant bag like burlap sacks full of trash that was intended to simulate. Uh, a human body, and the the top of the lava lake was kind of like crusted over just a little bit. Because of course, it's exposed to the air, so it cools. It cools into like thin, solid rock. And so, what these people were doing, they decided we're going to throw this sack into the lava lake to see what would happen to a human body. And 
what would happen is that the sack hit the lava lake and then it, it went in and then it caught fire and then it was gone. And that was it. So it was science, I guess. But then at the very end of the article, the last line of the article, and and there was there was no sight of the bag. Uh, so I guess it was it was science in the way that if I took an apple, I said I'm going to see if there's, if there's gravity, and then I drop the apple, and the apple hits the ground. It's like yeah, yeah, no, that happened. Uh, so I've confirmed what I suspected would happen. Yeah, it's sort of one but of those things where it's like you don't really need to be many tests. You don't need there to be many tests. You just drop it in, and then it catches fire. And then you oh okay that's, I guess that's what happens when you when you do that. Yeah, I think instead of trying to explain it scientifically, they should have just been like, well, we wanted to throw stuff into the lava. Like, who wouldn't? Now, if then, you when they did it, like if you go to one of those and you're at the top, right, and you kind of peek your head over, does it feel hot? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, it would be very warm, and it's not like the lava is right up to the very the very tip. You know, it's still some hundreds of feet down, and then there's some sort of climb or, or rappel if you want to get even closer, if you're right. a, like an actual volcanologist. But, I mean, you get to the top, and, yeah, there's going to be gas and heat, and it's going to be horrible, and probably give you cancer because of all the, the fumes, but that would be quite the experience. Yeah. Now, uh, do you know anyone who, because, you know, you live in the Pacific Northwest now, Do you, are, are you friendly with anyone? Have you talked with anyone who lived through, uh, who was in that area during Mount St. Helens? Uh, so one of the things about being a baseball blogger who works from home is that you get exposed to very, very few people in the area. <laughs> but I do know of, like, I need, move back, please, Carson. I could really stand Carson's facility in my life. But, uh, I, I mean, I do know of some people who are around, but, I mean, I don't have a lot of friends who are, you know, old enough to have been adult in the year 1980. But, uh, there's a lot of people I know who have, like, childhood memories of, of waking up to, to ash. And uh, Mount St. Helens actually forced a minor league game in, in Spokane to be ashed out. It was, they couldn't play because the field was covered with ash. And to my knowledge, that is the only professional baseball game, at least in North America, ever ashed out by a volcanic eruption. There you go. Hey, uh, yeah, we brought it back to baseball. We did. No, you, yeah, you, you did absolutely. Well, like, I, yeah, I'm sure that if we kept talking, too, there'd be... Um, well, no, just, I mean, if not necessarily in the in the details or the content, in the way of approaching them. Like you mentioned that, that uh, blog, what was the name of that blog again? Uh, I don't remember the actual name. I think the blog is just Eruptions Blog. It's on Wired, you know, Wired, and they have a oh. scientific blog network, and it's the, the volcano blog that they have. Oh, okay. Um, but the Twitter handle is just at Eruptions Blog, and the guy's name is Eric Clemente. He's a professor at Denison University, and he's, he's a big baseball fan, and he's, he's very, very cool. I think he, reading him, you know, he spends a lot of time on his blog, like, blasting the media for improper coverage or, or like, analyzing the latest science or analyzing something that he's found, and it's, it's, there are a lot of parallels between reading his blog and reading something like a fan graph or a more analytical baseball website, so I think it's some pretty obvious, like, crossover appeal. Well, the idea, right, is to take some of the hysterics out of um, and to, to answer some questions. I know, for example, um, of course, Nate Silver, who is a, um, an important part of uh, – has been an important part of Baseball Prospectus. Uh, with regard to politics, his his blog is, is really the only one I read uh, because he, he's so very good at taking out a lot of the, the sort of hysterics and the um, – 
you know the the day to day peaks and valleys of the of the uh, sort of politically oriented news cycle, right? And just sort of making everything yeah. sane, um, right? And I and that's sort of it's just sort of the same thing, right? That it that it fangraphs. Uh, I think probably you know one of the reasons the site exists and and thrives is because there's a there's certainly a group of people who want to ask who want to know about baseball but want to know about it where the narrative is driven by facts as opposed by the facts that are as opposed to the facts that um, I guess would um, would would best suit the narrative you know yeah but uh, here, uh, I guess a parallel that it's not quite the same but we were talking about Yellowstone and sensationalism and, and fangraphs and, and the approach. I guess the big parallel might be the whole Red Sox clubhouse story last year. We, you know, the, the chicken and the beer and, and all that stuff and being used as like as a display of everything that was wrong with the Red Sox. And of course, what was actually presumably wrong with the Red Sox is that they just they couldn't pitch and then they just kind of lost at the wrong time and they were a good team that collapsed at the very end. It probably had little to do with the chicken and the beer, and it that probably is something that's been going on forever. I think Terry Francona has talked about how there was all kinds of horrible stuff going on in 2004 that people just didn't hear about because they won the World Series and nobody cared. But the hysterics after that story broke, it's just like, oh, everything was wrong with the Red Sox and nobody cared. There was no loyalty and it just kind of went out of control and whatever kernel of of truth and significance might have been in in the stories, it was just completely blown out of proportion. And so... Uh, there are there are parallels between that and and volcanic coverage, and of course any scientific coverage or coverage of really any event or phenomenon. Well, right, and most of it is uh, at some level uh, more more boring, but because because li- because life is uh, you know life is kind of boring, right? And yeah. and yeah, if you want to excite a group of people, um, especially by means of fear or I think in the case of the Red Sox clubhouse, what you're what you're sort of um, appealing to is uh, uh, any any human's uh, I guess instinct to uh, for righteous indignation because people very much like feeling that feeling, um, or or you know in the case of uh, Yellowstone perhaps it's fear but like but like most most narratives are both. Like not that pat, and also, uh, in in I guess boring at some level, but also maybe more interesting because they're more nuanced, and that's the sort of thing. Uh, it sounds like that you're interested in with regard to uh, sort of the uh, volcanic sciences. Yeah, I think I think all of us, us I guess being you know the the more analytical baseball writers, we're like all kinds of have a greater appreciation for for the nuance. What went into making an bat so great, or, or what went into making training Matt more from mediocre pitcher into a great pitcher this season and, and all that kind of stuff where uh, maybe, I think maybe part of the problem like you said, you know, life is boring, a lot of the stuff that, that goes on is boring and you have a journalist that hears about the Red Sox chicken a beer and he thinks well this is a great way, at least for me to feel like the stuff I cover isn't actually boring, I'm going to make this seem like it's hugely important because for me it is hugely important because it's a change from the norm in theory. Yeah, well, Jeff, um, I, I'm going to pay you a compliment, and you don't have to respond to it, but uh, one of the things that I've admired about your writing, um, and, and uh, it's already sort of revealed itself in the stuff you've done um, just here the first couple of days at the site, is that um, I think that you take the sort of – you use the analytical tools 
of baseball kind of unselfconsciously. Uh, for you, they're, it's, uh, you're sort of matter-of-fact about your use of them, something that even five, ten years ago um, you know, would have been sort of at the forefront, would have uh, had to be at the forefront of a, of a piece because you would have had to explain terms or whatever. I think for you, uh, you're sort of able to incorporate it unselfconsciously um, in, you know, within the narrative of, of any, you know, given post that you're writing. So uh, that's a compliment. You don't have to respond to it, but I'm just saying that um, that, uh, that would be a trait that I think any writer would benefit from. I, I appreciate it. I, I actually realized, I just wrote about what the, the A's training for Stephen Drew, and then I, I finished my post, and then I thought about it. I kind of looked it over. I had to run out the door, but I gave it a quick look over, and I thought, I, you know, I didn't really use a lot of numbers and so I started to get concerned but nobody yelled at me so I guess it was fine but I don't well, know no, I guess but, well that's I mean that's certainly a conversation we have uh, at Fangraphs all the time is like is transitioning from that part where you know where uh, this sort of this sort of analysis is you know belongs merely to the kind of you know the the, the nerds uh, and then but, the, but I think that you know, as you get to a point where um, people feel comfortable with that sort of analysis, uh, you need to have, uh, you, you know, there needs to be writing behind it. You know, or maybe the writing is is the thing that drives the entire thing, and the numbers again, like, are just part of it, but unselfconsciously. You know, it's just responsible, uh, responsible writing, I guess, at that point, because you're using facts, which sports writing um, does not always feel the need to. Uh, use. <laughs> um, I, I will say, just I mean, not to belabor the point, but the the transition from from Baseball Nation to Fangraphs, I was I was kind of nervous about it because, of course, even though it's still baseball writing, it's baseball writing in a new place, and you know I've heard about the Fangraphs community and, and how vicious it can be, but the transition so far has been really like almost shockingly comfortable and um, almost uncomfortably good for my ego. So I think I could stand. Uh, maybe some barbs or insults because, like, I've always kind of had a naturally huge head. It's been the thing that people have picked on, and it doesn't need to get bigger. So, you know, you're you're ready. You're ready for some. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that uh, uh, we can encourage you know, the half dozen people that listen uh, to <laughs> to make any to make any sort of snide. This is a volcano podcast. I'm sorry. The audience is going to be at least three times smaller. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to uh, invite you. Uh, to some uh, brief adult conversation um, after done recording here, but for the for the in the meantime, I'll, I'll say first of all, it's uh, nice having you on the podcast, and second of all, it's nice uh, having you at Fangraphs. Yeah, I am. I am. Re- I just emailed Dave a short while ago, but I am really at peace with with this decision, and I'm I'm really 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 happy. Cool. This transition, so I, I can't wait to see where it goes. Well, excellent. That is uh, a new Fangraphs contributor Jeff Sullivan uh, talking about Fangraphs, but mostly talking about volcanoes. Uh, I'm Carson Testuli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. All right, dude. That's what podcasts look like.